Hello and welcome to the Monash Perioperative Medicine podcast series. My name is Christine Ball and today I'm speaking with Associate Professor Liz Everett, who is a neuroscientist who has done a great deal of work in the area of postoperative cognitive dysfunction. And today I want to talk to her particularly about a recent publication in the British Journal of Anesthesia relating to the BALANCED trial. Welcome, Liz. Hi, everyone. Hi, um, Chris. Thanks so much for inviting me to do this podcast and, and discuss um, what we think is a really important and exciting um, manuscript. Okay, so firstly, let's define some terms. What, what is postoperative delirium and why is it important? So postoperative delirium uh, or delirium is an acute confusional state. Uh, it has a fluctuating course, so over a period of, of 24 hours or, or longer in terms of hospital admission stays, it comes and goes. Uh, so the, the relative incidence depends a lot on the number of times people are assessed during a day and the information that can be gleaned from staff, family and medical records. Um, it's critical for us to find strategies to reduce delirium because we know that um, an episode of delirium is associated with long-term cognitive and functional decline, increased risk of morbidity and mortality, and an increased risk of dementia and institutionalisation. Not only that, when we're talking about hyperactive delirium, so when patients get very agitated, it can be very frightening for the patient, for their family and for staff. Uh, and in fact, some um, subjective uh, qualitative outcomes that we've looked at suggest that it also has an impact on whether people subsequently decide not to have surgery for important medical, um, medical reasons. So it has long-term consequences. Um, even hypoactive delirium, which often involves hallucinations, can be very distressing and long-term outcomes include an effect on social, psychosocial if, um, factors such as uh, depression. We know that the best treatment is prevention with non-pharmacological uh, interventions. Um, and we also know that we need to be assessing for this because hypoactive delirium is the most common form. And unless we actually do a proper assessment for delirium, it, it's not noticed by staff. Okay, so if we now move on to the BALANCE trial, maybe you can just give us a quick overview of what the BALANCE trial was about. Mm -hmm. so, so the BALANCE anesthesia study was a study um, looking at two uh, BIS targets, trying to ascertain whether targeting deep anesthesia, which was uh, a BIS of 35 as the target, versus targeting lighter anaesthesia with a bis of 50 had an impact on all-cause mortality at 12 months postoperatively. So that was the overarching study uh, and, and we undertook the balanced delirium sub-study as part of that study. Okay, thanks. Okay, so let's talk about bis monitoring. What, what is a bis monitor and what does it measure? So uh, the bis Spectral index monitor is a measure of brain activity or electroencephalography. Unfortunately, the algorithm for the um, BIS is proprietary, so exactly 
what it's measuring and how it comes up with an output of one number is unclear. So that um, does mean that targeting a single number, uh, you know, is associated with a degree of variability. We took into account that variability uh, and we took into account the, the variance that we would have at each of those BIS levels and determined the sample size we would need accounting for that variability. Having said that, the BIS is shown to be effective in assessing the depth of delirium when compared with other measures and, uh, sorry, depth of anaesthesia when compared to other measures such as routine hemodynamic monitoring. And it is believed to reflect the level of the depth of anaesthesia within a reliable parameter. So the balanced anaesthesia delirium study was a unique opportunity within a larger study of identifying um, the depth, the, any association between the depth of anaesthesia and post-operative delirium, because it included, as I said, two targeted BIS um, uh, numbers and reliably achieved significant uh, separation between the groups, which had been an, an issue with previous studies where most people looked at one targeted BIS versus routine care. Uh, and because previous studies had relied on comparisons like this, many were, were not observing a significant difference in the dose of anaesthesia administered between the groups. So identifying the, the, an association between depth of anaesthesia and delirium was very difficult in studies where there really was li very little separation between the groups. Now, you also talk about time in birth suppression as in your article. Can you explain the significance of that to us? Absolutely. So there have been a number of studies that have shown um, an association between time in birth suppression and post-operative delirium. Um, in studies that did not show this association, there was a tendency for both groups uh, to, to experience a significant amount of time in birth suppression. So similar to not having separation between the dose of anaesthesia, there were also a number of studies where there was no difference in, in if you like, the dose of birth suppression. Um, there have also been a variety of definitions of birth suppression, which adds to the heterogeneity between studies and our ability to um, meta-analyze those studies. Uh, in our delirium substudy, we observed significantly less birth suppression in the light anaesthesia group compared to the deep anaesthesia group. And in our study, that was um, a, a mean of two minutes versus seven minutes. So we really had very little birth suppression in our lighter anaesthesia group, and that's quite different to most previous studies. And this may have contributed to the observed association between lighter anaesthesia and a lower incidence of post-operative delirium. Uh, there is evidence of an association between BIS value and time in birth suppression. However, it is recommended that clinicians not only use the number, but also look at the waveform when they're considering um, periods of time in birth suppression. Yeah, all of which suggests that anaesthetists should be looking more closely at the BIS and not just at the number. Okay, so let's come to the results of the trial. What were the differences between the two groups in the short and the long term? So um, what we saw um, between our two groups was that the incidence of post-operative delirium 
in the period of time up to five days or discharge. We assessed the patients twice daily um, and there was a significant amount of training for the um, assessors. And we saw an incidence of 28% um, of postoperative delirium in the group who were targeted with BIS35 or deep anaesthesia compared to an incidence of 19% in the patients who were targeted with lighter anaesthesia or a BIS of 50. So that was a significant difference in the incidence. And so lighter anaesthesia was associated with a much lower incidence of postoperative delirium. In line with that, at our 12 month follow-up, we assessed for cognitive impairment and we found that uh, again, the BIST 35 group or the deeper anaesthesia group had a significantly higher level of cognitive impairment of 20% compared to 9% in the group targeting light anaesthesia or a BIST um, of uh, 50. There are some considerations to think about um, what this reflects. And uh, of course, we know that um, response responsiveness to BIS and anaesthetic agents changes with age. It's unlikely given that all of these patients were over 60 years of age, that that's a complicating factor or a confounding factor. Um, so, so I would suggest that we're, what we're looking at is probably more something to do with the pathophysiology of delirium rather than an indirect effect of variability to anaesthesia exposure as a result of different ages. Now, both groups were controlled for blood pressure, so that's an important, um, that was important control, but there were some differences in cardiovascular outcomes. Do you think they were of any significance? Um, we did observe a difference, as you say, um, between the groups. Um, in the overall, uh, in the overarching balanced anaesthesia study, there was no difference uh, in the, um, the patients in either group with those uh, outcomes. So it may suggest that there might be um, some sort of confounding or bias in terms of the subgroup, but it seems unlikely and although we saw a difference in the baseline balanced delirium substudy between cardio, for cardiovascular disease between the groups, it wasn't enormous, 29% versus 20%, and it may have been uh, a chance difference that was confounded um, by the association of depth of anaesthesia and, and delirium. Although the balance of the balance, the likelihood of risk is, is probably um, balanced by the slightly higher incidence of stroke in the BIS 50 group. So there, there was a kind of counterpoint, if you like, to the fact that there were more with cardiovascular disease in one group where there were more with stroke in the other group. We didn't further investigate this association because it wasn't part of our um, pre-planned analysis. And we really didn't have sufficient numbers of patients to identify a robust outcome, but it is something that needs to be addressed in future research. Okay, so patient-centred care is becoming increasingly important and the goals of surgery should, should be long-sighted, looking at whether surgery is justified or appropriate in terms of the patient's overall life goals. So what were the long-term outcomes of this study? I absolutely agree. Um, 
So the long-term goal of the balanced delirium substudy was to identify if targeting lighter anesthesia resulted in fewer patients having cognitive impairment at 12 months than um, patients who had a targeted a deeper anesthesia. We did, in, we, we did observe a, that significantly fewer patients in the lighter anesthesia group were classified as having cognitive impairment at 12 months compared to patients in the deep anesthesia group, and that was 9% to 20%. With regard to patient-centred outcomes, this is a critical point for consideration when we're designing our studies, and we're certainly including patient advocates and previous research study participants in, in the future design of our studies. Um, some recent work has shown that fear of experiencing cognitive decline following anesthesia and surgery for older individuals is ranked higher uh, in terms of fear than fear of death. So we're talking about consequences that are vitally important to patients. Our own interviews with patients regarding what outcomes are important to them include that they expect an improvement in quality of life, which includes obviously an improvement in functional outcome and any cognitive impairment is associated with a decline in functional outcomes. They want to have confirmation that they won't experience memory and thinking problems and that they would like preoperative education to really assist them in decision-making when it comes to deciding what their best options are in terms of um, non-surgical treatment or surgical treatment. So this has significant implications for preoperative assessment of patients and, and consent. Um, what do you what do you think the message is for anaesthetists and surgeons about what we should be telling patients preoperatively? Um, so, look, I think this is a really important point. Um, I, I won't go into consent in a great deal of detail, but just as an aside, we had um, four patients who were. Um, uh, recruited to the balanced anesthesia delirium substudy who had delirium at baseline. Those patients were consented to both the delirium substudy and to have their surgery without any third party involvement. So we are talking about a situation where patients really do need to have some sort of cognitive screening preoperatively purely from a consent point of view. Uh, in addition to that, it helps us identify patients who are at risk and, and change the management for those patients. Um, the the um, Lancet report on dementia that came out last year highlights the fact that prevention of delirium and dementia is really our only course of action at the moment because there are no pharmacological treatments that delay the progression of dementia and there are no pharmacological agents um, that reduce the length or severity of delirium. So non-pharmacological interventions like the Hospital Elder Life Program as part of the American Geriatric Society are really important. And we can't intervene with those um, strategies unless we know who's at risk. So that's a really important factor for um, perioperative medicine as a whole, and it has to be multidisciplinary because anaesthesia can't do all of that and can't get necessarily get access to the patients long enough preoperatively, which is where the surgeons come in. I think the, the balanced 
delirium substudy um, gives us further evidence that targeting lighter anesthesia may lead to a, a reduced incidence of post-operative delirium and long-term cognitive decline. We do have to think about risk of awareness when we're targeting lighter anesthesia, but I just would highlight that in the balanced delirium substudy, we had not no incidence of awareness in either group. So what's the future for studies? I guess the old question of, you know, general versus regional anaesthesia. Um, do you think that needs further investigating now in light of this? It's a great question. And it's a really interesting kind of contradiction in some ways that when we look at studies that compare regional anaesthesia with general anaesthesia, we don't see a difference in post-operative delirium outcomes or longer term neurocognitive disorders. So this kind of, in some ways, contradicts that. And I'm still kind of getting my head around that. But I think until we understand really what the pathophysiological mechanisms of delirium are and what is identifying, uh, you know, what are the factors that make a patient vulnerable that we need to be identifying is really where we have to target our research. Um, larger pragmatic uh, clinical trials are important to look at what happens to a population, but smaller, RCT, uh, smaller RCTs that are investigating pathophysiological mechanisms of post-operative delirium and can look at specifics of individuals that are likely to um, or who experience post-operative delirium and post-operative neurocognitive disorders are actually critical to inform possible preventative strategies, uh, intervention strategies, both non-pharmacological and pharmacologically, and ultimately reduce the health care and social consequences of delirium and consequent dementia. Now, obviously, you can't know the answer to this, but can you postulate what the reason might be for the difference between the, the two groups? <laughs> um, uh, no, I think is the answer, but I will try. I think, it, um, I think it depends on the perspective so, and, and the pathophysiological mechanisms of delirium, which we really don't understand. So one question is, why does deep anesthesia, you know, is why is deep anesthesia associated with an increased risk of delirium? But the alternate question is, why is lighter anesthesia associated with a reduced incidence of post-operative delirium? And this may come down to individual vulnerabilities, underlying and undetected neurodegenerative disease, physiological variations in response to anaesthetic agents, even in uh, a variety of age groups over 60. I don't think we can answer this question until we understand more about the pathophysiology of delirium. And we really need to be working on strategies to identify those who are most at risk and improve perioperative management of these patients from a multidisciplinary perspective and use what evidence we currently have available. And by implication, you seem to be implying that um, the post-operative problems 12 months later are due to the delirium, not so much the anaesthetic, I presume. Um, that's a really great question. None of the evidence that we currently have uh, about post-operative neurocognitive disorders suggests that there's a difference in terms of incidence or outcomes 
regardless of the duration uh, or as you mentioned, regional versus general. We do see with post-operative delirium that there is uh, an association that is much uh, higher. So with cardiac disease, there's a much higher incidence of cognitive, uh, of post-operative delirium than in non-cardiac surgery. But we're not talking about a huge difference. We're still talking about you know, a third of patients following non-cardiac surgery compared to um, perhaps 50% following cardiac surgery. So th there doesn't seem to be a lot of difference. Most of our work at the moment is, is investigating biomarkers. And what we hope that will tell us is, firstly, an opportunity to identify at-risk patients, but also what's happening throughout the sequence of perioperative medicine and can we identify those patients who are having uh, some sort of differential reaction in terms of their inflammatory response or their um, you know downstream neuronal damage response that's different to patients who don't end up with post-operative delirium and post-operative cognitive dysfunction and at the moment because we don't see that association with general anesthesia, regional anesthesia. Uh, the most common hypothesis would be that there is um, peripheral inflammation leading to neuroinflammation as a result of the surgery. Uh, but obviously, that is a, 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 a hypothesis at the moment. It's so interesting. Uh, if we can just talk a bit more about the preoperative assessment, there's a lot of very short cognitive tests that can be done in the you know the week beforehand. I, I always have some hesitation about those because what if the patient's not expecting there'd be a problem? You know, I'm not the person to be having that conversation with them. Um, so do you think that people should we be targeting age groups? Should we be doing considerable preoperative assessment of people's cognitive dysfunction at a period sometime beforehand? Uh, look, I think ideally it would occur with the general practitioner or, or um, your primary care physician when they first start talking about surgery that some sort of cognitive assessment should happen at that point. I don't think that's likely in the near future, although we are hoping that we might get to that point at some stage. I think that we, can't, we, we just cannot ever have the resources to do a full neuropsychological assessment on every patient 65 years or more presenting for surgery. So I, I um, have, with my colleagues from Melbourne, come up with a, a template which suggests that we start with minor sort of questions that are easy to add to a pre clinical assess or pre-anesthetic assessment, such as, have you ever had delirium before? Are you aware of any, um, you know, subtle cognitive impairment? And then depending on the answers to that, so then we might do something a bit more involved like um, a, a mini cog um, and ask a few more questions about their independence. And if there's a family member available, that's even better. And then if we continue to see a, a scenario of, de, of deficit, then we would go and suggest that perhaps the patients need to be referred to a memory clinic and perhaps um, there needs to be some further intervention prior to the surgery under, being undertaken. 
Additionally, I think um, it's only very recently that uh, even our cardiac surgery patients in Melbourne have received information that delirium might even happen. And that can make it, if people don't understand that it's a possibility, they think it's their own fault, they are hesitant to tell staff. And so it does lead to some really significant trauma for those patients. So moving with education to patients as part of their pre-op um, workup, I think is essential. And I'm, I'm doing some work here at, um, at Wild Cornell with the um, communications team, trying to get together some information that can be accessed um, online for patients to understand what the risks are. That's fabulous. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to add about the paper or, or the subject more broadly? Um, not really. I think that we still, there's still so much for us to know, but I think that there's so many guidelines coming out now, unfortunately with limited evidence, but increasing awareness, patients are starting to ask questions, families are starting to ask questions, and as a community, people are becoming much more aware of it. Uh, I think that the potential to implement those um, strategies to identify patients preoperatively and start with something small and advance to um, something more significant when we know that, that you know, we can see that there, there's possible deficit in this patient. Um, but we do need to think about the pathophysiology. We do need to undertake studies that are going to tell us about the mechanisms uh, behind the vulnerable patients. Thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Chris. It was great to talk with you.